morning, everyone. Oop, try this again. Ah, there we go. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, ascent, uh, uh, assembled by special members. And by that, I mean the dogs and stuff I see right here. That's pretty cool. You missed the talk where we were talking about you, about animals, a couple days ago. Anyway, so all of those of you who have just joined us, welcome to Young Adults at Camp Meeting. And just so you are aware, you are hitting the very last message of a series in the book of Job. So if you are just joining us, we have gone on quite a journey, and you may not quite understand everything that led up to it. But cheer up, you are not without hope. They have been recording these messages, and you can find them on the camp meeting website or the app or through the Carolina Conference website. Now, a few of you brought up last night that Thursday's message didn't seem to be there yesterday because a couple of you were looking for that. Good news, it is not lost. It just hasn't been uploaded yet because the weekend gets a little hectic, but it will go up. So if you are desperate to know what this journey through Job was like, the things that we have seen that lead up to this conclusion, uh, you're welcome to go and check that out. And just so you know that today... I'm super excited about this, as if I wasn't excited about all of it, but I'm super excited about this because we get the final piece of the puzzle this morning. And last night, we already saw a big piece of that because God has already spoken to Job about where, answering the question as to where evil has come from, where the suffering has come from, where all this stuff that's going on has come from. And that he, is invo- that, he, that he feels it, he is involved in our pain and suffering, not as the causation, but obviously through experience with us. And then he gave an illustration to start telling us how it's going to end. And that was through the experience of the three friends having to offer a sacrifice, right? And Job was going to pray for them and God was going to accept Job. And we see that that is a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus who didn't just die for us. He lived for us. His life covers us so that we have the freedom to wrestle through the messiness that is the pain and suffering down here and to not be toast, but to make it to the other side. But there's one more key piece, and that is how does this thing finally end, all right? Jesus is covering us to get us through, but where is the end? And that's where the book of Job is going to end, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But before I do that, I'm going to take a moment and just ready myself before God. I want to invite you where you are, if you would just bow your heads and ask the Lord to speak to your heart individually, that your heart would be open, that your mind would be receptive to the message God has tailor prepared for you in the Spirit today. Pray for those around you that they would also receive a blessing. And while you're there, please pray that I am hidden behind the text, that we would only see what God would wish to have communicated this morning. And after a few moments of silence, I'll bring us together out loud in a close of that prayer. And we'll get started with our final message in this series this morning, The Lord Restores. So let's just take a moment and go before the Lord in prayer. Father, it's been a journey, it's been a pretty exhausting journey, just like life sometimes seems like a really exhausting journey, filled with pain and confusion and questions, just like Job, but now it's the Sabbath, and since it means rest, that's what we're pleading for, we need rest from the suffering, from the pain, from the questions, from trying to figure it out and solve it on our own, we just need rest and you promised us rest and so we claim it show us how this ends show us how we can really have ultimate true rest 
May the same spirit that inspired these words now instruct us to their meaning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles or your PowerPoint, by PowerPoint I mean you power on your phone, you point to the Bible app and you point where you're going, right? However you're going to do that, go to Job, the 42nd chapter, the last chapter of the book of Job. We did the first half last night. We're going to finish it off with the last half and we will be done with the book of Job. What a journey. You made it all the way through, 42 chapters. And we're going to be picking it up in verse 10, because we ended last night with 9. 42, Job 42, it's right before Psalms, if you're looking for it in the big book, as in the hard copy. All right, we're picking it up in verse 10. Here we go. It's going to be exciting. How does this end, God? How does this end? Job 42, verse 10. The Lord, there's one of our main characters, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Note, only the Lord can do any sort of restoration from evil, suffering, and pain. Right off the bat, it's the Lord that's doing it. Job's not fixing it. Friends aren't fixing it. It's the Lord. Verse 11, then all of his brothers and all of his sisters, apparently Job had a wider family we didn't know about, and all who had known him before came to him, so, they sh- you know, like a lot of people, they show up when you're done with your problem. And they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him. That means to try and lessen your grief or disappointment. And they consoled him, and they comforted him. Comfort means to alleviate grief or distress, right? So now they've come to do that. For all, And then there's this interesting phrase that if you haven't read the book up to this point, you might get confused. And they consoled and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. Pause. If you've been here all week, did the Lord bring all this on him? Did the Lord bring all this on him? No. Now, did they think he did? Yes. But did we get some answers that that was not the case? Yes. But guess who was not there to get those answers? The family who didn't bother to show up in the problem. Right? So this is not a statement about the reality of the narrative. It's a statement about why they came. It's said in the context of they came to console him because, man, look what God did to him. Can you imagine the story Job gets to tell them now? Right? Look what God did to you. <laughs> Actually, and I almost wonder if the three friends didn't pipe up at that point too because they're feeling a little like we need to make up for lost time. Kind of like, <laughs> you know, Eliphaz is like, no, right? And Bildad's like, eh, no. And then, you know, the guy that wasn't saying anything great so far was like, <laughs> uh, no right? Okay, I just had to use that pun again and no one got it. Anyway, so far, nothing so far. Anyway, okay, right? So they all said that, right? So they came to comfort and be with him. At the end of verse 11, each one gave him a piece of money and each a ring of gold, okay? Now, this is just an allusion to they're now trying to take care of him. How nice. They show up at the end to do that, but they're trying to take care of him. They're not trying to prove their point, all right? They're not up to take care of themselves. Verse 12, then the Lord blessed the latter days of Job More than what? More than his beginning. That's a very interesting phrase and almost hard to believe when you've gone through this book, that the Lord would bless the latter days of Job more than the beginning ones. It's almost as if it says that this is almost a promise that God, everything you didn't have, everything you were robbed from in this life, right, in the beginning of your days, God is going to make up for more than double, right? This is the illustration here. And then watch this, right? So he gets... 14,000 sheep, not too bad, 6,000 camels, right, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 
and a yoke is two, so they at least got 2,000 of those. 1,000 female donkeys. Okay, and then 13 is very interesting. And he had seven sons and three daughters. Now, note, these are not the same kids he had at the beginning of the story. Right? I mean, he's getting new kids, but what about the ones in the house? Right? Now, the story doesn't tell us, and I don't think there's anything in the text that we can point to that his children at the beginning of the story are somehow lost forever or that they will not be resurrected one day. But this is an important illustration and a point we're going to see fleshed out here, right? Well, I'm not saying they're lost, but it does show us that at the end, there will be people that are not there. We're going to unpack that later. There will be people that are not there. I'm not saying Job's kids won't be there, but I'm just saying he doesn't get the original ones. Verse 14, then we get this interesting statement. Ladies, you should like this. The sons don't even get a mention. The ladies do. Right? Verse 14, he named the first, now he's talking about the daughters, Jemima, kind of like the syrup. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway. <laughs> right? But actually, it's funny that we say that. Uh, Jemima in the Hebrew here, it just means affectionate. Okay? And there's actually, remember in Hebrew, the Hebrew language names have a lot of meaning, so let's pay attention what Job wanted to call his kids after going through this experience. The first one, Jemima, affectionate. The second one, Keziah, right, which means basically, I know this is a weird name in Hebrew, it basically means sweet-smelling bark. <laughs> Ladies, how would you love that name? I, you know, poor thing, but, you know, um, I guess you could really call her a chip off the old block. Anyway, okay. Yeah, okay, but the point I'm trying to make with this is sweet-smelling, basically something pleasant, okay, that something if you're around it, it just is very nice, it adds to the experience. And then his final daughter is Karen, that seems more normal, Karen Havoc. Which, now this one is going to sound weird in its literal translation, but I will explain. It literally means horn of cosmetic. Yeah, exactly. You're like, horn of cosmetic. What it's basically trying to say is she is the epitome of beauty. She's the top of the cosmetic food chain, kind of speak. Like, you look at her and you're like, she puts the woe in woe man. Okay, it's like, woo. Okay, that kind of thing. So notice that when Job names his daughters after he's gone through this whole experience, he, the thought that is on his mind is something about something that he's experienced has been affectionate, it is sweet-smelling, and it's the height of beauty. This is how Job is perceiving the end of this experience he's been through, which is just mind-shattering when we've just read the 41 chapters before that. Right? Verse 15, in the land, no women were as fair as Job's daughters, especially Karen. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Ladies, this is nice. They got an inheritance too in a time where they weren't supposed to get an inheritance. So the symbolism here, again, this is abnormal. This must be God-inspired. The end of the story, everyone's getting an inheritance. 16, and after this, Job lived 140 years, more, and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. Yeah, that's a lot. He gets generation after generation after generation after generation, all living together, enjoying peace. Like this is the part of the movie where the music starts and, and the flowers are flying through the air and, you know, maybe cinnamon trees are there or something because, you know, we, we did see Kezia's there. And um, sweet smelling bark. Anyway, and so they're doing that. Right, And this is the part of the narrative where like, this is just beautiful. In verse 17, and Job died, an old man, but full of days. Right? And this is the part where you would expect me to immediately launch off about heaven. Right? 
This is the part where we just launch in and go, ah, it's talking about heaven, like some sort of divine life insurance policy. Don't worry about the suffering you've been through because heaven is coming and it will be good enough. And how many of you have heard that before? Right? The only thing with that is it goes against the Bible narrative because I hope I'm not going to shock anybody here, but I'm just going to tell you the point, the Bible doesn't even really view heaven as the destination. And the Bible doesn't even really think heaven is the point. And in fact, the last place we see in the Bible is not heaven, it's a new earth. Right? This this comes out of the early centuries, second, third, fourth centuries, where a lot of Roman influence, where basically the idea that the earth was so bad we had to blow this rock and go somewhere else. Okay? But the earth was not the problem. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, the earth was beautiful. It was good. It was pleasurable. They were sitting in Eden, and Eden in Hebrew by itself means pleasure. The whole point of the earth, it was great. There was a perfect place with perfect people and perfect communion with God and each other, and the only thing that went wrong was people. And they took everybody else with them. Right? Job talked about that. The animals got sucked in. All the rest of creation got sucked in. All the disaster came because of us. It wasn't the planet's fault. Right? God doesn't have to like, all right, we do go to heaven, but it's like a way station just so we're not there when the fire's cleaning the place up. Right? You know, I mean, it'd be a hot attraction, but you don't want to be there. Right? And so you go up there and you wait so he can remake everything. And then the last scene of the Bible is you come back down and live here again. You get the earth back. We get the earth back, and we get it back the way it should have been. Is anyone recognizing this? I mean, think about it. And it's so cool how that works, right? The first chapters, first two chapters of the Bible are perfect place, perfect God, perfect people, perfect creatures, and perfect communion, beautiful place, Eden, pleasure, awesome. Okay? Chapter three, a tree comes along, and everything goes haywire, right? You jump to the last three chapters of the Bible... And it goes back to a perfect place, perfect God, perfect people, perfect stuff. And you see a tree there again, right, that everybody's hanging out with. And it's the new Eden and everything's pleasurable and awesome. So you go from perfect in a tree back to perfect in a tree. And you know how you get there? The tree that's in the middle. You see Jesus go into another garden, sweat drops of blood, and then hang on a tree. And it's because he defeated him on a tree that we get back to the tree. Can't make this stuff up. It's so cool. Right? The point is, the point is not heaven. The point is restoration. The point is everything being put right. If we've been wronged by losing the earth that was to be our home, if we've been wronged by not having an Eden-like experience down here, justice is not giving you a different experience. Justice is the restoration of the experience you've been stolen, had stolen from you. Restoration is giving us back what we should have had to start with right? It's restoration. And here's the cool news, and this is how we're going to close this narrative out this morning. We're going to jump ahead to Revelation that's going to pick up on these allusions in Job, and we're going to see that in Revelation there's actually three things that finish this off, the, the complete answers that Job is seeing in illustration foreshadowed but not complete. There's three things that happen in Revelation that finally bring this whole thing to a close that give us the answers that we have sought. The first one we've already talked about, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. However, we will read a couple of verses. Jump to Revelation 21. So now you can jump all the way to the end of the book. Since we've hit the end of Job, we'll hit the end of the book. Go to Revelation 21, and we're going to look at the three things in Revelation that end all of this. With Job and the experience we've just seen as our guide to understanding. 
All right, there's the notice. This is going to be the new earth. This is the whole key point. Chapter 21, starting in verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new what? Earth. There's earth. The point's earth. First heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of where? Heaven. Now we're leaving heaven. Scene's done with heaven. We're done with heaven. We're coming back. Made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among where? Among men. Where are the men? Mankind. Where are they? On the earth. It's coming to the earth. Not among the angels. It's not among the other unfallen worlds like you know, Job 1 and 2. It's not some heavenly council meeting. They're coming here and he will dwell where? Among them on the earth, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And then this beautiful verse, but don't miss something in it. And he, you probably heard this at every funeral. And he will wipe away every tear from who? Their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Isn't it? But I don't want you to miss one thing we normally do when we read right through this. Who is having the tears, the pain, the suffering, and the death wiped away? Who doesn't have that anymore? Us, right? Notice who it did not say would have every tear wiped from their eyes. Would no longer have any pain. Did you catch it? The Bible is telling as much as what it admits as what it says. Who's doing the wiping? God. Who's getting the healing? Us. Who does it not say does not have tears and pain? The cost of this restoration is God will be in pain forever. Now, I can pack it out for more than just that one verse, but I didn't want to miss it in this verse. You do realize that the cost of God letting this all take place is God will suffer forever. And you go, well, that doesn't sound... No, think about it. God will always know who is not there. He can't unknow that. He doesn't do a data wipe and all of a sudden God's forgotten something. Right? He will always know who is not there. He will always know who he does not have. And here's the amazing and scary and sad and magnificently cool thing all at the same time. You do realize God can never make another you. If you're gone, he cannot make another one of you. And you go, well, he's God. He could do everything. Oh, I don't, I don't doubt he can make someone that looks like you, smells like you, talks like you, laughs like you you know, whatever, he could make that, but would it be you? He might could fool everybody else, but guess who's not going to be fooled? God. That won't be you because what makes you you is the product of your experiences. And even if he did a data dump into the new clone and was like, ta-da, here's all the way. The thing is that creature did not experience what you experienced. It's not you. Why do you think he was willing to die for you? Because you're the only one there is and ever will be. He cannot make another you. You were of infinite value to him because if he loses you, that's it. He never has you. You could have a lookalike, you could have a clone, but it's not you. So what about all the people that aren't there? He knows that. The cost of giving us freedom is he weeps. He still suffers pain for eternity. We will get healing. And I'm not saying God's going to run around moping all the time. But the cost of our healing is his pain. So we have the new earth. But back up to chapter 20. 
Because there's another ending, our second ending. How does this end? And 20 is very key for Job. Because <laughs> God talked about it to Job, but here we go. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, Leviathan. The serpent, sea serpent, right? doesn't say Leviathan there, but I'm referencing what we've studied so far. The serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw the thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection, because over these the second death has no power but they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign for him a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. A couple things about this passage. Because now we're getting into hell. Right? Big end of the story. The big thing that for centuries, and I totally get it, is the big question mark, one of the two big question marks in life about the goodness of God and the origin of evil. You get to the end and then something amazing happens. It starts talking about how Satan... The origin, Leviathan, right? The origin of evil, how he's going to be dealt with. And the first thing he's, that's done to him to help deal with him is what? Anyone notice it? What's the first thing that's done to him as a punishment? He's locked away for what? A thousand years. Now, I wish I had time to really unpack this. If you want to ask more specific questions about this later, you can. Okay, but he's locked away on the earth. And the reason why he's locked away, this is symbolic, is because everybody's dead. All the wicked are dead. All the righteous are gone, okay, up in heaven. So he's down there by himself. In a sense, he's locked in by his circumstances. He's got nothing. Now, here's the cool thing. We normally blow right through that and go, okay, he's just sitting down there a thousand years. And then a resurrection happens, and he's got people, and he gets back to work. Now, but think about this for a moment. Why would God take a thousand years to lock him up on an abandoned planet before he does anything? You ever thought about this? Because, by the way, what condition is the earth in when Satan gets locked up down there? What's already happened? Well, first of all, it's a disaster train because the second coming's happened and mountains are thrown into the seas and things are gone back and everything's fallen apart and stuff's crumbled and fire and all that. Uh, it's a disaster. You basically have a ball that is unformed anymore and the land's back under the water and everything's just one big mass of nothing. There's no life on the planet at all because anyone that was righteous and alive is off the world and anyone who was wicked is dead and still dead. There's nothing there but Satan. And all of a sudden, if you've been reading the narrative, this should strike a little light bulb in your head. What started this war? <laughs> what, did, what did Lucifer, Hylial, who became Satan, the adversary, what did he want? He wanted to be God, right? Right? 
Can he be God? No, because he's a created being. He just can't. I wish I had time to unpack that. He can't. Okay, God was looking out for him, believe it or not, because it, you'd be a him, horrific failure if you're not God trying to play God. It just doesn't work, right? Maybe some of you realize when you try and play God in your life, it doesn't work. At least I have. Uh, I usually make it worse. Okay, but watch this. He said he could be God. And then what became the focal point of his rebellion? Where does he set up shop? Earth. So watch what God does. Before God is even willing to destroy Satan, he does something I think a lot of times we miss. He is so just and so fair and so, remember the pain in Job when he was referencing Leviathan, like missed opportunity. I love this creature. He was the first of my creation or one of the first. I missed this thing. He basically hands Satan the earth back the way God found it in Genesis 1. Formless and void. There's nothing on it, no life. And he goes, all right, Satan, here you go. Um, I took six days and put this thing together. Uh, We're going to leave you here for a thousand years, and then we'll come back and see what you've done with the place. Is anyone seeing this? What can Satan do in that thousand years? Nothing, because he does not have creative power. It's almost as if God puts him in time out so that he has a thousand years to realize God was not against Satan. God was actually looking out for him and Satan had no reason to do what he did. He gives Satan a chance for understanding. He lets him see in the fullest way possible, Satan, this was not necessary. I tried to warn you. I wasn't lying to you. This was not an unjust system. You were incapable of doing this. And even if I had somehow given you power to do it, it would still be a fraud because it's still me working through you like a puppet. You can't be what you are after. You wouldn't have been happy. You would have been miserable. Even if the rest of the universe was convinced, you wouldn't be because you would know secretly deep down within it's a fraud. It's a light show. It's a magic. I was looking out for you there was no reason for this i loved you and this is why even satan gets answers before the end wow isn't that amazing because honestly if i was god i wouldn't care what satan gets but this is the nature of the god of the scriptures he is so selfless he is so loved that even his worst mortal enemy at the end he takes a thousand years out of his plan to make sure that he can understand. I mean, because God's come back at the second coming already. He's desperate to get this thing all fixed and live with his people, and yet he pauses a thousand years for Satan so that he can understand. Does that not just blow your mind? (laughs) What kind of God is this that he would do that? And then don't miss one other thing in this passage. Because obviously when the thousand years are done, Satan, just like Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 tells us, his pride still gets in the way. And when the next resurrection comes and there's people again, he goes back out to do his thing like he's always done. And, he uses this, and Revelation uses this interesting phrase in verse 8, Gog and Magog, which seems like the weirdest names possible. And he says he goes there and he gathers all these people together and he surrounds the holy city. It's like he does this one big last frontal assault, Game of Thrones style, on the city. And then, and only then, does it say fire drops out of heaven and does what? Consumes them. It's the lake of fire. But, you know, if you just read that, it can sound like Satan and his people all gather up and they're all charging the city and then God's like, all right, fine, I'm done. 
and they're gone. Except this phrase, because remember, this is the cool thing about Revelation. It's di- three-fourths of it is direct quotations right out of the First Testament. It's just, taking, it's just taking quotes right out of the beginning of the Bible. And so if you want to know what it's meaning, you probably should go back and see what the thing it's referencing says. And this term Gog and Magog, this is not the first time in the Bible this is mentioned. It's actually very interesting. In Ezekiel 38, it mentions Gog and Magog. As part of God telling Ezekiel, where's Nick? There you go. I'm quoting Ezekiel for you. Sorry, he always like, do Ezekiel, do a series on Ezekiel. So I'm quoting Ezekiel. There you go. Anyway, Ezekiel 38 mentions Gog and Magog, and I'll read it for you so that you don't have to turn there, but listen to this carefully in Ezekiel 38, because you might find this very fascinating. The other place in the Bible where Gog and Magog is referenced, and it says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face towards Gog and the land of Magog. So he's telling Ezekiel, look over at this place, and I'm going to show you something. And he goes on to start talking about a lot of things that are happening there. And he gets down to verse 20 and 21 of that chapter. And it starts talking about this group of wicked people that are all charging that location. And Ezekiel seeing this in vision. And then he says something about that group of people that's very telling for us in Revelation. In verse 21, it says, I will call for a sword against him on these mountains, on my mountains, declares the Lord God. Yet every man's sword will be against his brother. And with pestilence and with blood, so in other words, he says this blood and pestilence, there's a disaster happening in this group of people. I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain on him and his troops and the many peoples with him the torrential rain of fire and brimstone. It's quoting the exact same thing Revelation is and here's the point it's making. When that group of people goes to charge the city, It isn't, here comes a legion, God knows if he doesn't do something, he's going to lose. What happens is that group of people are so selfish and so wicked and so evil and so just everything like they were and just so angry and so prideful and everything at this city that here's the sad thing, they can't even keep the battle plan together. They start tearing into each other on the way. They're literally tearing into each other, sword against each other. It's like they're just having a mass brawl. It it disintegrates. They can't even complete the attack. They're fighting and damaging and destroying each other. And at that point, God told Ezekiel, I'm going to notice in the midst of torrential pestilence and bloodshed, he's like, the only thing I can do at this point to stop the misery is I have to put them out of their misery. And he drops the fire to end it all. See, the interesting thing Revelation says is that God, the saddest thing about evil is that God doesn't have to so much destroy it as it destroys itself. I don't know if you've noticed this, but God doesn't have to punish this world as many times as we think because we're doing a pretty good job of destroying it on our own. Is that not true? Our selfishness, our pride, our anger, we do a good job at destroying stuff. We destroy our churches, we destroy our families, we destroy our friendships, we destroy our planet, we destroy our politics, we destroy our countries. We do that. Evil does not work. It's suicide. It destroys everything it touches. Selfishness ruins everything it touches. Wickedness destroys everything it touches. You play with it, you get burned. God doesn't have to punish you as much as you were punishing ourselves. We're destroying ourselves in the last great throw, evil's final, supposedly triumphant attack, and it disintegrates, and they're killing each other. They're destroying one another. 
And at that point, God says, there's nothing more I can do. And he drops the fire. But there's one last bit of information that explains another reason that you may have missed why he has to drop the fire. Another reason he has to drop the fire. Notice here at the tail end of that chapter in Revelation. Verse 11, chapter 20. And at that moment when the fire is dropping down, because Revelation always says and then backs up and gives it the event again, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it and whose presence earth and heaven fled away was seen, right? So all of a sudden he sees God right there and it says no place was found for who? No place was found for them. I, don't, I can't go past that. I think that is the, one of the saddest statements in all of Revelation. This group of people that the fire's just dropped on, the Bible backs up to explain it a little further, and it goes, no place was found for them. Let me ask you a question. How do you feel when you know you don't fit in? I mean, you know what I'm talking about? How do you, how do you feel when you're around a group of people and you realize you're the fifth wheel? You're the odd one out. Like, you just, you, you have nothing in common. They're kind of annoyed that you're even there. Like, like, there's nothing you're really contributing to this group of people or this situation. Does that feel very good? No one wants to answer, <laughs> right? Doesn't feel good, does it? What happens if you think there's nowhere that you fit in in life? What if you think there's nothing you can contribute to the world, nothing you can contribute to people, nothing you can contribute to your family, that you just don't fit in? How does that feel? By the way, people feel that a lot. Why do you think the suicide rate's so high? It's a miserable existence to think you don't fit in, that you don't have anything to offer, that no one would care if you're here or not. Now, let me ask you a question. As bad as that is, what would happen if you felt there was nowhere in the entire universe you fit in? I don't even want to try and comprehend that. And the Bible says that at this moment, all the wicked seem to have this revelation when they see the Lord that there is nowhere that they fit in in the entire universe because earth's being rehabilitated back to a selfless universe. And if all you've known is selfishness and me, 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 and I, 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 and evil and suffering and pain and death, and now all of a sudden the earth is being put back in a universe where none of those things happen and no one likes those things and no one ever wants to do those things, and that's not how the world operates and everyone looks out for each other instead of themselves, what can you possibly do in that universe? What can you contribute to that universe? There was no place found for them. I can't imagine what that realization will do for them when all of a sudden it hits and they realize, where? Nowhere. And then right as that horrible emotion floods into them, verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. They're there. And the books were opened. And the other book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in what? In the books according to what? Their deeds. Can you imagine that right as the realization hits that there is nowhere in the universe that they fit in? It says the book's open and every single evil, horrible, selfish, whatever deed they have done, it's brought to their attention all at once. How do you feel when you know you've done one stupid thing? Yeah, stupid, yeah. What happens when you can think of five or six at the same time that you've done? What happens if everything stupid or selfish or painful or whatever that you've ever done in life all is in your mind at once? And not only that, but you can see the full effects of it throughout history all at once. 
What is that going to do to you? I don't even want to think about that. And then as all of that hits, who are they looking at? Who's sitting on the throne? God in his glory. And here's the thing. The Bible tells us over and over again, God's going to look the same, but depending on what you think about him is what you're going to feel when you see him. There's going to be one group, those that know that God doesn't suck, that he's actually full of love, that he's always done what's best. We're going to look and be excited like, wow, here's this amazing God. We just couldn't, but I'm so glad to see him. But if you think God, like the Job's friends, is like doing evil to you and smiting you and manipulating you and whatever, and he's out for blood and he's just punishing you for no good reason. If you see that God and that's what you think about him, are you going to be very happy to see him? You're going to be terrified because you're going to realize in that moment, there's nowhere you fit in. You're going to realize everything you've ever done wrong, and you're going to see a guy that in your mind you think is out to get rid of you. And especially if he knows all that you know in this moment, he would want nothing else but to get rid of you. And at that moment, the only thing that could save them is the only thing that could save them all along, and it was Jesus, but they didn't go to him then, and they ain't going to him now. And here's the thing. All of this hits all at once, and what do you think happens to these people? They basically die from the inside out. I don't know how you would function if you thought all of these things all at once. Can you function? I can't even function with two things on my mind like that. It's almost as if they die inside, but the Bible has made an important point to this point. The body is not some soul sitting in something. Life is your physical and your, right, and your soul, the breath together. And here's the thing God has to look at that moment. When all of this hits, these people literally die on the inside. And we know that's true because how many of you have heard phrases, they're going through hell right now? Are they sitting in a lake of fire going crispy, 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 crispy? Is that what they're doing? Have you ever noticed that emotional pain is a lot worse than physical pain? Right? What happens when these people are now trapped in an emotional hell of their own making? And the only thing that could solve it is God, but they won't go to him. But the body's still breathing. What happens as long as that body's breathing? They're alive, except they're alive in what state? They're in hell. There is no pleasure, joy, happiness, peace, anything. They're just dead. And then God, and this is a horrible illustration, but it's the only way I can think to communicate this. I, rem- I remember when I was little, we had a little, we had a dog, Sheltie dog, ran out in the road and got hit by the UPS truck because the gate was left open and the truck didn't kill the dog but it crushed everything inside of it to the point that by the time we got it to the vet they said well we can keep it alive but all it's going to know is pain because we can't fix everything going on inside of it so we could pump it up with drugs and we could do whatever else it could stay breathing but it's not really living Unfortunately, probably some of you have had this experience, right? And they give you a choice. We can keep it alive or we can put it to sleep. That's one of the worst decisions to have to make, by the way. I'm just saying that as a pet owner. I remember when my last cat died and he was suffering at the end. He didn't just die outright. He was doing whatever. And I had to literally get a friend come, had, had a friend come to help take the cat to the vet. I start crying now thinking about it because you don't want to do that. Because you love that thing. You go. What do you think God feels in that moment when he can't help them? Because they won't let him. And they're just in pain and agony. 
And the Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's his will. He wants to save them, but if he kept them alive, they would be in hell. And so God does the strangest, most difficult thing for him ever to do. The most merciful thing for him to do in that moment is to put them out of their misery at the cost of his eternal misery. The fire drops because they're not only destroying each other, but they put themselves in hell. Far from God creating a lake to throw people in to torture them forever, we've tortured ourselves and God's only hope is to put them to sleep. That's what hell is. In a sense, hell's actually to prevent hell. God's got no other option left. He tried, but if he leaves them alive, it's just misery. Satan and the lost just puts them to sleep. There's a new earth, but the final thing I wanted to mention this morning is that there's one other piece of healing that God has to do for us. And that is we have to have answers. We have to have answers. And you might have missed this, and I'll build up to this point. Turn back to Revelation 5 and we'll finish this off. This is the last ending. And to be honest, until I studied Job, I didn't even see this ending. (laughs) So I wanted to share it. I thought something else was going on. Revelation 5, the scene opens. Something very fascinating. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. John's watching, and he says, He sees in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He's looking at a heavenly council meeting. And he said, He saw a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And what's interesting is basically he says he sees the lamb. He sees God sitting on the throne, and this scroll is handed him, and it's got writing on the inside and on the out. And why that's important is not that we haven't seen other scrolls in the Bible with writing, but there's only other one, one other place in the Bible where you see a scroll that it's written on the inside and on the back. Basically, there's no room. They just fill up the whole thing. That's again in Ezekiel, right? And in Ezekiel 2, 9 and 10, we find out that Ezekiel sees a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back. And what it is is it's a record of all the evil, suffering, and pain in the world. In other words, and this is true, isn't it, that pain and evil and suffering is so bad we've run out of room to even describe it. We've run out of room to even keep track of it. It never seems to end. And it's like you get the idea in symbolism that the scroll couldn't even contain it. They had to flip it over and fill up the back, and they've still run out of way because pain is that bad. Suffering is that bad. Evil is that bad. And so John looks, and there is that scroll. And verse 2, and he said, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? Basically, who can make sense of this scroll? Who can make sense of the evil, the suffering, the pain? Who can explain? Who can give answers? And then verse 3, no one in heaven or on the earth, un, uh, on the earth under the earth and the heavens were able to open the book or look into it. And you can feel for John here. Verse 4, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. You get the idea that even heaven, the unfallen universe, is confused. How do we make sense of this? And it's so bad there that on the earth, as is our experience, John begins weeping. He goes, this stuff is just so bad, and if there's no answers, he just, he just weeps for this experience. And then verse 5, all right? And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
talking about Jesus, has overcome so as that he can open the book and it seals. And he says, John, hold on. The lamb, Jesus, he's got an answer. Hold on. He's got an answer. And then this is the part where for the rest of the chapter, right, verse 6, and I saw between the throne, the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if it were slain, having sent horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. You get the idea that the Lamb, Jesus, shows up and says, Give me that thing no one can make sense of, and he busts the thing open. And the whole rest of the next couple chapters, chapter 6, going through, right, 6-1, I saw the Lamb broke one of the seals, and I heard the four living creatures say with a loud voice, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it a bow, and a crown was given him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And for the next bit of the chapter, you have the seven seals, right, and all this damage and all this hellish disaster and people dying and stuff dying and suffering and death and misery. And the thing that we often miss is because we fall for the trick. The lamb breaks a seal. All the beasts say, come. All these creatures say, come. They say it four times in the passage, verse 1, 3, 5, 7. You get the idea of come they're almost screaming like come show us reality give us the truth come make make a solution come and you see these verses don't miss this but all this stuff goes on that something is said over and over again verse four don't miss these phrases and another a red horse went out and him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth or verse 8, I looked and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it the name of death and Hades following with him. Authority was given to him. A lot of translations you'll see over and over again it says it was permitted, it was granted, it was granted, it was permitted. The point is when the lamb breaks open the seals, we often read it as if God is going out and doing something, but why would he have to permit himself to do something? Why would he have to grant it? We've seen this in Job in the first two chapters that God is granting evil a chance to show itself because he has to. These seals are not God busting the earth up. The seals are the explanation of Satan busting the earth up. Satan's going through destroying everything. And the beasts are saying, come, show your true colors. Show your true colors. What's going on, right? Come, they want reality to reveal itself for Satan to show his true colors because if Satan is really evil, his actions will show it. They do that. They do that. And then the saddest thing was right at the beginning of that, we all have fallen for the lie. It says, we saw a white horse and him who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him not that he had one it was given to him and he went out to conquer and to conquer and we often read through it i've read every single you know author or scholar i can see and they all say this is jesus going off to do whatever but the problem with that is that means we have fallen for the lie because when you read ezekiel 39 when you read zechariah chapter 1 and chapter 6 and matthew 24 it's clear we actually see this same description of a horse and it's not god on that horse it's satan Because he, this is how he always does, he shows up like a false Messiah and a false Christ. He appears as if he's somebody that he's not because he wants, just like in Job, who did he want, who did he talk to Eliphaz? He appeared to Eliphaz like he was a spirit. He appeared like it was God. And then he told him all these lies so that they all thought, the religious people just thought, God is the cause of this and that's all Satan wanted. 
And here in Revelation, we bought the lie. His, his, his white horse fiasco was so convincing. We're like, oh, here comes Jesus, except that he had to take a crown from somewhere. And it was allowed him to do this. Jesus doesn't need permission, and he doesn't need a crown. He's got one. This is a lie. And the earth falls apart. And I wish I had time to unpack this, but jump down even to verse two last things to say. Look down at verse 9. Because this is a verse you might have seen before. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, pay attention to what they say. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What's their complaint about? What are the righteous complaining about in this verse? What, what's their beef with God? Notice, yeah, notice they're not complaining about what God's doing. Which is another good indicator that these seals must not be God doing something. Because they're like, why are you doing this to us? No, they don't do that. They go, why aren't you doing something? In other words, their cry is just like Job. Their cry is just like ours. They go, really? Like, like, why are you not curtailing the deceit and the atrocities of the other side? Why won't this end? Why won't you end this? Their complaint is it looks like God is doing nothing. Isn't that how we often feel? All right, fine, God, you tell me it's from Satan. Fine, you tell me it's selfishness and evil. But why won't this pain end? Why won't you just end it already? You said you were coming back and you don't. Why won't you? I'm mad. Why won't you do something? The seals keep going. And then the final verse for today, and this is the point. I didn't see this till Job, and I hope this will really, I hope this will impact you as much as it did me. Verse 8 is the end of this story or chapter 8 verse 1 is the end of the story and i watched this one of the weirdest verses i love this then the lamb broke the seventh seal and up to this point all six seals before this when it broke something happened so you expect something to happen but watch what happens when the lamb broke the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for half an hour no violence No disaster on the earth happens at this point. The only thing that happens is you get to the final seal. They've all seen all this destruction and evil and horror and pain. And they cry, why, Lord, why? What's the answer? And you get to the end and the lamb, Jesus, goes and he cracks the last one. And every time he's cracked a seal in these passages, it shows you something. And all we get is an explanation as he cracks the seal. And whatever is revealed in that moment, it says the entire universe shuts up. The entire universe is at a loss for words. He cracks this seal open and all of a sudden, all anyone can do is sit in silence. Why? You ever notice this passage? Why? What could cause revelation? A very loud book, a lot of stuff going on. I mean, like the the beasts and creatures and elders never ran out of times to praise God and they'd always fill every waking minute with noise and all of a sudden he cracks a seal and nothing's happening but no one's talking. They're sitting there in silence. The entire universe is in silence. I'll tell you why. Actually, I'm going to let Isaiah tell you why. Bonus point. Isaiah 52. You'll want to see this. And then I promise I'll stop. (laughs) But I don't want you to miss this for Job. Because this is what Job had to hold on to. Isaiah 52. Talking about the same period of time as... Revelation 8, 
Isaiah 52, look at verse 13. And may it all snap into place. Watch this. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Pause. Who is this talking about? Jesus, right? The lamb that was slain. Revelation imagery in 8. Watch this. Watch this next part. Verse 15. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Why? Why will they shut up? For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. See, God promises answers. And here's, and here's the reality. I hope you've seen in this journey, I hope you're even getting glimpses in Revelation, and I'm sorry I don't have the time to do even more justice to it. Job got a lot more answers than people think. And I really do believe when you study the Bible, there are a lot of answers that people think don't exist, but they're there. But here's the truth, and I don't want to lie to you this morning. If I could give you every single answer, it would not be a good one. Let me rephrase that because that sounds weird. If I could explain to you in fullness why the pain you have experienced and why God didn't seem to act or why this, that, and the other, if I could explain that to you, it would not be a very good explanation. It would not be a very good solution because if I can come up with the answer, then it's pretty stupid. Is that making sense? Here's the thing. I'm not going to lie to you. The Bible, Job, the book of Job, as many answers as are there, it's not going to answer every single question you have about evil and suffering and God's actions. It's not. And anyone that tells you that the Bible is going to do that right now is a liar. Now, people that tell you that the Bible and God doesn't have answers for you in the Scriptures is also a liar. I think we see a lot. I think there is plenty there to base your faith on. But here's the point that I don't want you to miss there in Revelation 8. The final thing God has to do at the end is not just do away with evil, not just bring an end to it, not just put those that have done evil out of their misery, not just put us out of our misery by wiping the tears from our eyes and the pain, and the, not just putting the earth back together. Here's what he has to do. He has promised to give us the answers that we seek. And whatever this answer is, and I don't know what it is, okay? I'm just being honest. I do not know. But the Bible does tell me whatever it is is so beyond us, is so earth and universe shattering, is so powerful that the only thing the entire universe and we can do when he cracks open that answer is we sit there in silence, overwhelmed, speechless. And trust me, if it wasn't a good answer, you wouldn't be speechless, you'd be screaming. The only reason they're sitting in silence is because they have all the answers they were looking for. And that answer's blown their mind. The lamb that was slain broke the seal and there was silence half an hour. Because Jesus will shut the mouth of kings. Shut our mouths as he wipes our tears and he will say, this is why. This is where I was. This is what I was doing. This is how it ends. I promise you whatever that answer is, it is going to be worth the wait. I don't know what it is, but I promise you it is going to be worth the wait. 
Job got glimpses. He didn't have all the answers. Book of Job doesn't try and tell you Job had all the answers. He got a lot of them, but he didn't have them all. He doesn't have his kids back. He he didn't have all that, but he had enough to say that God is not the source and that God will restore and that the Messiah has taken care of him and that that God, the answers that he did have were enough for him to believe that that God had the answers for the questions he still had. That the God that had given him those answers was someone worth believing in and trusting in and loving in and, 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 and holding on to knowing that he will give him the answer he doesn't yet have. And that's what I'm pleading with you this morning. I know you don't have all the answers, but I'm really hoping through this week, I'm really hoping through your study, I'm really hoping through the Word, you see there are enough answers to know that God is not the source of your suffering. God is not the source of evil. God is not the one punishing you. He does not think evil of you. He does not want to do anything wrong to you whatsoever. The last thing on his mind is even him. He's thinking constantly about you. He's suffering with you. He wants it to end like you want it to end. And I hope that if you know that that is at least enough for you to have faith that he will give you what you long for at the end not just a new earth not just the end of evil but the answer as to why and an answer that isn't a cop-out but one that makes perfect sense one that we look at and go we have nothing to say because at that point there's nothing left to say All that's left is just to be embraced by the Father and by the Lamb that was slain and to find healing and hope and joy and peace and restoration. The answer's coming, friends. It will come. It will. It's not here now. It will come. But is there anyone willing this morning to admit that maybe your view of God was wrong, um, like all of us. I still have wrong ideas about him. That, that God is better than you thought. In fact, he's, he's better than you could think. That this God is not the cause of your suffering. And he's not the cause of your pain. And he's not not working. Is there anyone willing here to say, you know what, all right, God, I'm going to choose to believe this picture that Job has painted of you. And I am willing to trust that God to give me the answer one day that I need. I'm willing to trust that that God has an answer that I will accept. That that God has an answer that I will be okay with. And more than okay with, I will be so blown away by it that all I can do is sit in silence and in awe of his love for me. Is there anyone willing to say, I'm willing to hold on by faith to trust in that God to give me the answers I need? Praise God. Job was about faith, but not a faith in spite of answers. It was a faith built on amazing answers that will carry him to the ultimate answer, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, it's not quite how we expected it to end. But then again, if we could have expected it, it probably wouldn't have been that pretty. Thank you that you still give us answers. Thank you that faith isn't an absence of questions. Thank you that you never ask us to stop asking questions or to have doubts or to have... Thank you, that's okay, you cover us. 
thank you that you don't dismiss our questions. You promise to give answers. Thank you for the answers you gave to Job and his friends and his family and to us this week. And Lord, thank you for the assurance that you're not going to give us a cheap answer. And it's not going to be a pretty little sermon that someone can give and say, there you go, your pain's okay. Thank you that you promise not only to put everything right on the world, everything right with people, everything right even with Satan, everything right with those who suffer. Thank you that you promise to make everything right with our understanding that we will get our answers. So, Lord, we choose to believe that you're not who the world says you are, and you're not even who the church often says you are. You're who Jesus is. And we choose today to trust that the Jesus that has loved us more than life itself, the Jesus that would have rather been in hell with us than heaven without us, a Jesus that would rather cease to exist on the cross than have us cease to exist in hell, the God that is that caring and concerned and loving and experiencing of our pain with us, that that God, that we can trust you to give us the answer we don't have yet, and that it will be everything we need and more. Restore us, Lord. Wipe our tears. Carry us through the pain. And bring us to that moment where the whole universe can sit in awe and wonder of your name. For you have restored all things. And truly we will say, the Lord, as Job has said, the Lord restores. We give ourselves to you. And we ask that you come quickly so we can get the answers. But until then, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for letting us rest, letting us Sabbath in you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's see. our prayer as a young adult department here in the Carolina Conference that your faith would be built on Jesus. That you would know it's a sure foundation and that it is more wonderful than anything that we could have ever expected. We want to thank you for those of you who came out for the week, came out today. We know that you had other things you could have done and we really appreciate the trust you placed in us to be able to share with you the awesomeness of the Jesus that we serve. We apologize if the places you've come from haven't always told you he was that great. But we want you to know that the truth is he is that great and then some. And so we want you to know as you leave this place, we hope not only we be equipped to go share how great he is with others, but if you ever need anything, we want you to know that at the conference we're trying to make efforts to assist you. And that's why we now have a young adult department full-time. And if you thought you couldn't get... You know, you've had enough of me already, tough. I'm the young adult director now for the conference. So, ta-da. You'll probably see me around. But I just want you to know if you need anything, please don't hesitate to reach out to the pastors or to me. My full-time job is to be there for you. And trust me, I'd rather talk to you than sit at a desk. So, please, if you need anything, if you want to fill up from the week, if you still have questions, talk to us today. Talk to me as you leave this place. And um, we'll get through this together. The answer's coming. I do believe it. So we love you. Remember, please, there's no meeting tonight. 
Um, but spend time this Sabbath meeting with one another in the joy of the knowledge that God is love. So have a great day. Eat well. And we hope to see you next year. And we hope to see you during the year as we live this life built on Jesus together. Have a great day, everyone.